Sometimes the things we're most comfortable with are the things we should think about changing. On today's episode, how leading organizations are using new management practices to upend business as usual. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 253. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show will give you access to the best thinkers, resources, and actions to help you to develop your leadership skills. One of the things that I'm constantly looking at, and I know many of you are as well too, is what are leaders and organizations that are on the cutting edge doing differently in order to support their success, the success of their organizations, and most importantly, the success of the people that they serve. And that's why I'm really glad today to welcome someone who's been doing a lot of thinking on that, not only in his book, which is just recently out, but he's been doing that actually for many years in helping support the success of leaders. And my guest today is David Burkus. David writes regularly for Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Psychology Today, and 99U. And he's the founder and host of Radio Free Leader, a podcast that shares insights on leadership, innovation, and strategy. And he's also Associate Professor of Management at Oral Roberts University and is the author of the new book, Under New Management, How Leading Organizations Are Upending Business as Usual. David, welcome to Coaching for Leaders. And thank you so much for having me. Well, when we were talking originally, I was so surprised that you and I hadn't connected already because we've both been running leadership podcasts for four or five years. Your show's been going a while, hasn't it? I I know, right? Yes. Seven years, although I'm really, I don't know, wow. I'm kind of ashamed to admit the first two years because we did them on like a conference call line and that was it. And then I just put the audio on iTunes. But yeah, seven years now. Well, I'm kind of ashamed about the first couple of years. (laughs) I should say ashamed, but uh, you know, it's interesting how you learn as you go on doing this, and uh, and it's actually a great analogy for leadership. Is sometimes you just start, you do something, you begin it, you fall flat on your face a little bit, and you pick yourself up and learn how to do it better. Oh, totally. I mean, I think if you're not embarrassed by your work from five years ago, then you're not growing fast enough. And I think the same thing for leaders. Like, if you can't look back to decisions you made five or ten years ago and be sort of not maybe embarrassed by the outcome, but embarrassed by how little information you considered or how you delivered, communicated that with, you know, peers or subordinates. Again, I, I think you're probably not growing fast enough. We ought to be sort of taking those bumps, bruises, but more importantly, learning from them. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's almost like we don't want to certainly be stopped by that fear or even that that occasional embarrassment that we've got. But but to be able to know that, you know, that's just part of the learning process and to work through that. And I think I'm sure you've seen this too, the people who have the courage to be willing to work through that, especially in developing their leadership skills, ultimately are able to do a lot more for themselves and the people that they serve. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I'm, that actually is a great lead into your book because we're going to talk about some of the things that the that leading organizations are doing today that are that are doing things a little differently. Speaking of making changes and learning, but but before we get into some of the details, I'm just curious what what captivated you in, in writing this book and why why zero in on this now? Yeah, so my uh, my first book was called The Myths of Creativity, and I, I never intended to write a creativity book or an innovation book. What I wanted to do was look at the leaders of creative or innovative companies, 
and try and figure out how did they act differently? What did they do differently to bring out that, um, that side? And what I, what I really found was that there's, there's a difference and you could call this a leadership action or not, but there was a difference between the stories that people in creative firms talked about and the stories that people in presumably non-creative or, you know, Dilbert-esque firms talked about. And it really came back to this idea of, you know, what do you believe about how the work should, should work, right? And in that, I found lots of really intriguing policies and practices and, and different ways that they went about that process. And that's what really started me down the rabbit trail that led to under new management. You know, under new management is about what are the sort of things that organizations have done to manage that shift from routine factory work to creative work. And I think all of us are, or most of us are in creative work now, even, even factory work is creative in the sense that it involves a lot more decisions that need to be made, a lot more complex systems we need to understand. And so what are the practices and procedures that these firms that are leading that are, are doing that are so different from, again, those sort of business as usual, almost Dilbert-esque workplaces? And, and more importantly, which of the ones that are sort of new and different are different but better and backed by psychology research and, and all of those sort of things? So that's what really started me down that rabbit trail was um, the prior book. I think every time you sort of make a deep dive on a subject and try and find an answer, you end up coming out with two or three more questions. And I just keep following the questions. Yeah, well, and I resonate with that a lot. I've got clients who are doing manufacturing. And even in what we think about as some of the quote-unquote very traditional organizations or traditional workplaces, that they're constantly thinking more innovatively and creatively than they have had to in the past and, and doing some really amazing things with that. And, and I was interested looking through your book of just how many things are here that I think a lot of us have just taken as givens and how businesses and organizations need to operate. And you've challenged us to really think about some of these differently. And the first one, David, you might get in trouble with my dad because my dad always told me that you shouldn't talk about your salary and what you make with other people. And that's always been the traditional thinking that a lot of us have had in organizations, not only as members of an organization, but also leading organizations. And yet I've I, one of the first things I saw from you was a, a TED Talk you had done on making salaries transparent. And you've also talked about that as far as an organizational strategy. Uh, tell me more about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm honestly, I'm not sure where your dad would have got it. I'm not sure where my dad got it. I, I mean, this is so the, our, our hesitancy to share this information is is definitely cultural, right? And interestingly, like I have a tendency to, to ascribe it to sort of Puritan roots or something like that that goes back into sort of the founding um, worldview. But it's actually relatively new even in the United States. You know, there's some evidence that back in the 1800s, I mean, there's a lot of evidence because it's there in the history books, that a lot of counties and a lot of states enforced income tax and enforced taxes on property, et cetera, by making tax records publicly available. Like there weren't IRS auditors, what they were was they had your neighbors. So they would they would put that, you know, John's farm paid this much in taxes last year. And then I could go look and go, hey, well, I mean, John's got a way nicer farm than that. Maybe I should alert somebody, right? Oh, that was, interesting. So it was public information here in the US. And then there are countries that even now in the Western world that make that tax record information still public. So, you know, this idea, I get it. It's a discomfort we all have, my, myself included, but it was not always that way, which was one of the sort of the first things I found in this. And then, then I, I dove into the research on what happens when it's shared. I was expecting there to be chaos and animosity and jealousy and infighting. And then, of course, I realized those things happen anyway when it's secret, right? So, right. so what is actually making it public actually do? Well, it, it shifts the conversation. So 
when you, um, I mean, assuming you have fair salaries, and I think most companies aspire to having fair salaries, then transparency becomes sort of an enforcing mechanism to keep them fair and feeling fair. Because what happens is instead of saying that John is overpaid, what I end up doing is I end up saying, hey, I think John is overpaid. Let's talk about the system that created that. And maybe there are improvements we need to make toward that end. And, and that's one of the reasons that you see that transparent firms and transparent industries see reductions in the gender wage gap because there are reinforcing mechanisms. I mean, so you, you can't hide in broad daylight, right? So the doing the work of making it fair happens more quickly and happens more easily. And because of that, you've got an increased sense of fairness, collaboration, motivation, all of these different benefits for making it transparent. So, you know, what I say now is most firms do aspire to pay all of their people on a fair system. At least making that system or making that formula public and transparent can only really help stir the conversation to how do we keep it fair? How do we make sure that as different things change, we stay with a fair system that rewards honest effort? I'm curious if there's an organization or maybe a group of organizations you've seen that have done this, have made that transition, and what happens when an organization makes a transition to bring salaries into the daylight? In the book, I, I profile three main companies that do total salary transparency. The first is Sumall, which was there. It started from the founding. But the second two, Buffer and Whole Foods, actually started in a, in a secrecy condition like every other firm. And then switched to transparency. In Buffer's case, they actually switched to like the, the top, top level of transparency. They make it public even to, they post it on the internet and customers and stakeholders and all sorts of people can look it up. And they also, they post the formula and they even have, I, I honestly think it's buffer.com slash salary. They have a salary calculator where you can see like, see how much you would make if you joined Buffer. Oh, wow. And uh, I mean, it's a, it's a total recruiting tool, but it, it speaks to their level of transparency. And, and in both cases, I mean, you find some initial awkwardness from the idea that you can just go to a document and look everything up. But, you know, they did a really good job of making sure before they made the switch that their salaries met a fair standard. And, and basically everybody, almost everybody stayed around where they are. So a lot of people got raises. And then actually a couple different people, we had to have an honest talk and say, you know, we need to, we need to pay you less because we need to bring this into a fair realm. And then they, they released it and they went to transparency. And after a little bit of that awkwardness, it's sort of, it, now it's no big deal. Everybody knows it. And, and the benefits of it are a big deal, but the sort of uncomfort, discomfort, all of that isn't, isn't really that big a deal. What, what I think is really interesting is how that reinforces that fair pay system. So there was, you know, this, this happened only a few weeks ago. So I obviously wasn't able to write about it in the book, but there was sort of a, um, kind of a hit piece on Buffer in Fast Company. The headline made it look terrible. And then when you read it, you wonder what's the big deal. But the headline was about how Buffer has transparency and still has a gender wage gap. But the story was actually that because they have transparency, they were able to identify that the current formula they're using now sort of creates uh, a little bit of a disparity when it comes to the experience portion of their pay system. And the real story is that they're now in a conversation among all of their employees where they're working to improve it. So to, like it was, it was a piece that read really odd because it read like, see, this doesn't actually fix it. But the story was actually, hey, we found out about it because we're transparent and now we're working to fix it, which is a huge win again in the transparency column. It forces you to stay fair even as things change. Yeah, fascinating. For an organization and, and maybe even a small and medium-sized firm that's thinking about maybe doing this uh, or hasn't even thought about this before, what's the starting point, David? I mean, one of the things that you mentioned a few moments ago there was making sure that your salaries were fair and equitable 
before was it Whole Foods or, or Buffer that you mentioned before they did that, they went through that process. I'm guessing that's a starting point. Are there other things that you'd want to think about at the beginning here? Yeah. I mean, so that's the that's the obvious starting point. And that's before you even start to make public that you're doing it, kind of start going that way. And then I look at there as being sort of a transparency um, continuum, right? So you could start out on the lowest tier, which would be not actually saying what everyone gets paid but releasing the salary grid or the pay scales or the formula, you, however, whatever system you're currently using to set pay, making that public and not public like buried into page 97 of a PDF employee manual, but public like easy to see so that people can see this is how we, we determined it. And whatever that pay scale is or that formula, in, in Buffer's case, it was a formula, whatever you're, you're using, make that transparent first. So you don't necessarily have to say that that these people make exactly this amount, but you can say, here's the formula we use so that you know it's fair. I mean, I guess if people want to do the math, they can, but I don't think most people will unless they're trying to make the argument that so-and-so is overpaid or that I deserve more money. But both of those conversations switch to being conversations about how do we make the pay scale fair in order to pay people what in accordance to the level of value that they're bringing. So, so I started that level and then you might decide based on reaction to, to start publishing internally what they are or take it externally. But I think you, you just kind of start small and you turn it up as much as your culture can sort of support. And every culture is going to be a little bit different. And that's why it was really important in, in, for me in the book to sort of cover different levels of transparency in different stories for that reason. This won't, not everything will work. What Buffer's doing probably won't work for everyone, but we can all take gradual steps towards more transparency. And what do organizations generally get when they make the move to transparency? What are the kinds of things that you see, uh, maybe, not even for, maybe not even for the Buffer, the Whole Foods, but a small firm that makes this shift? How does that change their operating culture? Yeah. So in general, you see in the lab and in sort of field studies of companies that do it, you see increases in an overall perception of fairness, which leads to increases in, in engagement. You see increases in motivation. So when people know that their effort will yield an increase in performance and that performance will be noticed and will yield an increase in pay, they're obviously more motivated to work hard to improve their pay. To me, the biggest thing is that is the way that, that those combined things, fairness and motivation, lean towards an overall sense of collaboration. So there's not this idea that so-and-so is overpaid, so I don't want to work with them anymore and all of that kind of a thing. We, we know what everybody gets. And so it really becomes more about how, do, how, do, how does everybody work together to increase value, um, which is really, I mean, that's, that's the end goal of, of any organization, right? Of any organizational policy is to make it easier for people to see themselves as part of that team and needing to create value for the whole team, not just for themselves and steal it away. And really, I mean, secrecy reinforces that idea that it's easy to just care about my paycheck, my bonus and disappear. But transparency shifts it, the focus to making sure it's about us and how is everyone creating value for the whole organization. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. I mean, it's, and I think this is probably really different than a lot of organizations think about it. Like you were, like we were both saying, I mean, we grew up in this culture, business culture from most organizations and even families where you don't talk about money, you don't talk about salary. So I, I love you challenging us on this and looking at what are the what are the great outcomes for organizations too. You know, in one of the other places you challenge organizations to look at is how they handle non-competes. And I think probably many people in our audience are familiar with non-competes and why organizations do that. But for those who aren't, what is a non-compete and how does that play into how companies typically set expectations with employees? Yeah. So, uh, so a non-compete is essentially an agreement that you sign usually right at the offer or when you're accepted the offer and you're signing the contract. 
that unto itself actually creates sort of a, a weird dichotomy because some people know about it going in and other people have accepted the offer, left the job, see the contract, and only then do they see the non-compete. But that's, that's actually a totally different monologue. So and essentially what it says is that if you, if you leave the firm, you agree not to go to work for a competitor for usually a set period of time, one year to three years, sometimes even five years. And so it's that idea that we as a company are going to invest resources in you, we're going to train you, we're going to expose you to trade secrets, et cetera, et cetera. And we don't want you leaving and taking all of that stuff to a competitor and making the competitor a ton of money because you stole ideas from us. Right. right, right, And the, the goals of that are noble, right? The idea that we would protect firms' investments in their people so that their people are better, et cetera. At every level, the person, the company itself, the, even the society that allows these agreements to happen, at every level, it seems like the goals of this are noble. The, the, sad, the unfortunate thing is that the data says the opposite. The data says that at every level, it's actually worse for employees. So oh, at, you know, on a personal level, we see decreases in motivation, a feeling of being trapped because you are um, but also, I mean, in a weird way, as a as a person, it, it kind of limits your pay. I mean, in in some industries, your people's best uh, or employees' best uh, promotion tactic is is a wide exposure to the outside and a demand from the outside. You know, in other words, they might have no intention of leaving, but the fact that they have that mobility helps them make the case for how they can stay and grow and be increasing value in the organization as they're increasingly performing better. Right. So that's one thing on the on the firm level. This is what I find most interesting. There's a lot of research that supports that when a person leaves firm A and goes to firm B, both firms actually benefit. So in, in one study in particular, we looked at um, engineers and saw that you know engineers file a lot of patents right as they invent things and design things. And when you file a patent, you have to cite all of the previous patents that uh, helped you get to where your idea is now. right? So just like in a research paper in college when you had to cite your sources, same thing happens in a patent. And we can use that to study how ideas migrate when people migrate. So what happens, somebody leaves firm A and to, goes to firm B. Indeed, we see an increase in firm B's patent filing citing firm A, right? Because that person left Left, took a bunch of ideas. No surprise, they used those ideas uh, in Firm B. That's that's what inspired the non-compete clause. But we also see an increase in Firm A's patents citing Firm B. In other words, the information that that the new firm has is sort of being transmitted back because that person who left is keeping network ties, keeping personal connections, etc., back to the first firm. So both firms kind of benefit from increases in information. And, and then at the societal level, you see this play out because economies, whole, whole statewide economies are actually served better by a lack of, of non-competes. There's sort of two natural experiments that people point to. The first is Silicon Valley versus Route 128 outside of Boston. The, the idea essentially is you have these two areas that during the computing revolution had equal resources. One had better weather, but equal resources in that they were close to colleges, there was already sort of an existing computer culture, except that one had this sort of traditional East Coast culture of secrecy and silos and clusters and non-compete clauses. And then in Silicon Valley, actually in California, there's been a long-standing rule on the books that by law, by state law, all non-compete clauses are null and void. They believe that it limits employees' mobility, which is a limit on personal freedom and liberty. So it's struck from the rule book. So even if a company asks you to sign it, there's no way they can enforce it. And that reason created sort of, or helped create the culture of sharing that Silicon Valley saw. And a lot of people point to as one of the reasons, and the weather, that it, it rose to so much prominence when Route 28 went through a lot of really tough times and is still kind of struggling. I mean, they're nowhere near where 
the Valley is, even though in those early days, there was a lot of money coming from Boston and New York in the form of venture capital to Silicon Valley. The talent in Silicon Valley, because they were mobile and able to sort of trade information and hence learn quicker, they sort of blew it out of the water competitively. And the, the other thing is we look at the state of Michigan and essentially there was a period of time where they had no non-compete clauses and then the state laws changed and they were now enforceable. And you see a huge migration of talent, engineering talent out of um, Michigan to other states with more employment mobility. So oh, wow. the, the reason I get kind of nerdy on all that is just to show that, that the research supports that on the personal level, on the company level, and even the statewide level, while the goals of these things are noble, they end up doing more harm than good. And it, now we've heard this a couple of times in, in interviews I've had on the show, David, recently. Uh, Sidney Finkelstein, you're probably familiar with, who just uh, released the book Super Bosses. Yeah, I love he, that. I love that book. Yeah, it's, it's kind of the, some of the same things where he talks about, obviously, firms want to hold on to their talent and do whatever they can to, to stay connected with talent. They don't want people to leave. But when people do leave, that the, peop, the super bosses, as Sidney calls them, who are out there and building relationships and, and building, you know, really teams of of people, not within their organization, but across an industry, uh, are doing just that, are keeping great relationships across across firms. And you're seeing both firms do better, <laughs> according to his research too. And so yeah. it's just, yeah. it totally challenges what most of us are used to, or we think should be logical on its face, but in, it's, it's, it's looking like that's not really true. Totally. I mean, if ultimately, if you if you want to be a great place to work, then you also have to think about the fact that you need to be a great place to have worked, because those are the people that are your biggest ambassadors about what it's like to work somewhere. Right next, right next to people who already work at your firm, your talent is gonna the next person in line that your potential talent is gonna talk to is people who used to work at the firm, and they're gonna compare and contrast the stories and the treatment and all of those things throughout it before they make their decision whether or not to come into that organization. So. It's just as important to pay attention to what it's like to be a former, an alumni of the firm than it is to the other one. And this is, this is why, and actually we almost lumped them together in two different chapters, but this is why there's another whole chapter in the book about creating alumni networks and celebrating departures. It's that idea that Sidney Finkelstein points to too, that you need to be a great place to be from, not just to be a great place to be at. Oh, I love that. I love that. All right. So now I, I want to get into also performance appraisals. And this is not something that we've never hit on the show before, but I, I, I know it's something that a lot of organizations and leaders have struggled with is nobody likes performance appraisals. I mean, I guess maybe there's someone out there who likes them, but almost universally, people dislike it. Employees don't like it. Managers don't like it. It costs a ton of time in organizations to do them. And yet... Uh, there doesn't seem to be, at least for a lot of organizations, that the sense that there's a great alternative. First of all, you know, why ditch the performance appraisal? <laughs> and 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 even better, like, what's the alternative to doing it if you don't have a performance appraisal? So again, this is one of those areas where the goals are very noble, right? But after we've tried it for a period of time, we've got a lot of evidence that it's that we're not meeting those goals, right? The goal of giving someone a review, giving them feedback and helping them with a, a plan to improve their performance, super noble. We've been observing it for a long time and now we know it's it's not really working. And so what a lot of firms are, are switching to is you're taking those hours, those hours, hours, hours that every year we, we invest in the annual you know, you know, rite of passage of the performance review. And let's spread those hours throughout the year. Let's use some of those hours to train our managers on how to coach their people using informal and much more frequent conversations around expectations and feedback on performance and actually feedback on management performance too. 
conversations about growth and development, the, these things happen better more frequently and informally. And, and that's really, I mean, the two reasons research-wise that performance reviews, specifically the annual review or every six-month review, get a failing grade is that the feedback is not frequent enough once a year. I mean, imagine playing a football game and then waiting a year to figure out the score. Right? Yeah. How do you make performance improvements on just an annual cycle? It's not nearly frequent enough. And then the other thing that we see is in the formality of it all, we tended to invent all of these interesting labeling and ranking systems that actually just degrade the whole conversation that should be improving performance to a negotiation about what is your grade, how do you stack up against your peers, and so this system, if that's the goal, is not working. And we're way better off at reinvesting that time in training our managers on how to be better coaches and, and how to lead people in informal conversations. And I love uh, that those three things I actually got from Adobe's system. They call it check-ins now instead of the annual review. And a check-in is any conversation that focuses around expectations, feedback, and growth and development. If you touch all three in one session, and this is what they trained and coached people on, was how to transition between those three things. Uh, then you end up with a check-in, you end up with a much more valuable conversation uh, that can actually improve performance at the right time cycle because, you know, that whole conversation could take just 10 minutes and then you do it again next month. Oh, that's great. And I think that's the struggle that a lot of uh, organizations have is they don't really like the current system, but they don't really know what to do next. And so maybe the Adobe model is a good starting point for people. But I, but I am curious in your experience, David, as you've talk with leaders or talk with organizations that are thinking about maybe changing away from performance reviews, what's the best starting point on that? A, 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 an initial action or a resource that'd be helpful for people to get their heads around? Yeah. So, I mean, so the best starting point is a conversation. So, you know, in Adobe's case, it was a bit of a leak, right? So Donna Morris, the, the head of HR for uh, all of Adobe was jet lagged, flying to India, had an interview first thing in the morning with an Indian paper and just kind of let her guard down and told her that was something her team had been thinking about, but they hadn't had the conversation yet. Of course, now they had to, right? So they, they pivoted really quickly and their, their first step was a conversation among all employees. I think they used, I remember right, they used an online forum to sort of house that discussion and just sort of said, you know, what are the things you want to get feedback on? What are the conversations you want to be having with your manager? What are the downsides of this performance review? What are the, what are the pluses, the things you'd like to keep for it? So really it begins with that conversation. I, I, I love the check-ins process, but I'm not um, naive enough to believe that exactly what Adobe do can be rolled out at every single model. You know, I'm, I'm not that guy that runs around with his four box model and his PowerPoint and says, if everybody just does this, the whole world will be better. Every company is going to have to tailor a solution to the people inside that company and the culture and all those sort of things. But that custom solution starts with a conversation. I think it looks a whole lot like what Adobe got into with informal, frequent conversations. But what gets talked about in those conversations? Well, that starts with a broader company-wide conversation about what do employees want from their managers, what do managers want to tell their employees, and how can we design a system that gets all of that done? You've spent so much time over the last six, seven years interviewing leaders, David, doing research, teaching courses, um, and you've had so many different perspectives on leadership. And I'm, I'm really curious, just on your own experience in writing and researching this book, What's something you came away with thinking differently for yourself or maybe even was surprising to you after this book than when you started the project? 
So, I mean, well, for, for starters, the cell transparency one was a total 180 pivot for me. I started out as kind of thinking, wow, how would that ever work? But it made perfect sense when I dug into the research. But no, I mean, the, the biggest thing would be the overarching lessons. So I tend to write, maybe because I have sort of intellectual ADHD, but I tend to write books in sort of a modular format, right? So there's one unifying thread throughout it all. And then there's a bunch of different essays that all sort of align with that unifying thread, right? And so there's 13 practices inside this book in Under New Management that that all have a unifying thread. And I thought only had one when I started, right? I thought the unifying thread was that these are ideas that are that are new, that are different than business as usual, but are better than business as usual. And what I found actually is that the unifying thread throughout all of them beyond that honestly comes down to, to trust, right? This is not a new concept, but you know, the, the best leaders demonstrate a, a trust and expect a reciprocation of that trust from their people. They don't manage to the point of just thinking that people are trying to be lazy and get away with doing as little as possible for as much money as possible. I mean, those, those people exist for sure, but the best leaders are trying to make sure those people don't get into their organization or into their span of control. And then when they do, they invite them to be successful elsewhere. But, you know, they start from that position of trust. And there, there's actually a ton of research, even down to the, the biochemical level, that when we are trusted, when someone acts uh, towards us with trust, we're much more likely to respond with trustworthy behavior to reciprocate that trust. And I see that, you know, throughout all of the ideas in this book and throughout a lot of the great leaders throughout history and the great organizational leaders now, they lead from a position of trusting their people and their people respond with trustworthy behavior and increase trust in them. It all comes down to good relationships, trust, human relations, you know, all, a lot of those things we hear about again and again, and, you know, we, we hear about it through different lenses and new research, but it, it, it all comes back to doing that well and putting people first. And if we do that, and some great things happen with it, David is such great perspective on this. And as you mentioned, there's a whole lot more in the book. We've, we've just hit on three of them. There's a ton in the book on what the best organizations are doing and changing business models. And also, uh, your podcast is a great resource for people too. radio free leader. How often do you air the show, David? So this year has been the first year that we went to weekly for the longest time we did every other week, but this year we went to weekly and it's, it's been a ton of fun. It's been really challenging for me to turn around and do the editing and do the guests and all that sort of stuff. Cause I do all of that myself. I, wow. I like it cause I'm sure you find when you do your show that when you interview someone, you're sort of listening, but you're also making sure that the recording's working right and all that. So I love to edit because I love to just get to listen to the conversation again. Mm. Uh, and really, that's the editing is the time I get to learn from them. So we do it every week. It puts an increased editing pressure on me. But the truth is I love it because I, now I get to learn from, you know, 52 people a year instead of just 26. Oh, that's great. I, I found the same thing. I, I learn a ton from the interviews I've had. And it, it is hard sometimes to learn as you're having that conversation. But then you go back and I, off, uh, I almost always do listen. And, and I hear things every conversation that I didn't hear <laughs> during the conversation. I was like, oh, wow, that was really good. And yeah, it's, totally right. I mean, it's meta. We shouldn't be in, we're in an interview right now. We probably shouldn't be admitting this and talking about it. Right, but yeah, it's right. totally true. Yeah, well, it is. And it's just, it kind of it's a reminder for me too of just how important it is to keep learning consistent. Like it's not a one-time event. You don't listen to something and you're like, oh, okay, great. I'm going to go and change the world now. It's it's a it's a how can I take one thing here and how can I maybe even re-listen or listen again? And um, I'm, I'm sure you hear this too from people. I, I hear that people sometimes listen to interviews two or three or four times. 
And the first couple of times I heard that, David, I thought that was odd, frankly. And and now I get it. Like because I've gone back and listened to interviews two, three, four times at different stages of where I'm at. And it really does change perspective. So um so anyway, <laughs> something to try if you're out there and looking for a new way to to hack some of these great ideas you're hearing. David, I really appreciate your time and coming on the show and thanks a ton for uh, your sharing your wisdom. I uh, I appreciated it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. David Burkus is the author of the new book, Under New Management, How Leading Organizations Are Upending Business as Usual. And he's also the host of Radio Free Leader. Thanks, David. Thank you. Thank you so much, David, for the perspective here. And I hope that this conversation is getting you thinking about just ways you can look at some of these things differently in your organization. There's a lot of things that in many organizations are sacred cows that we don't often think that we can change. And many people in this community have the influence and the position in their organizations to affect change on some of these things. And even if it's not one of the things we talked about in today's episode, I'd encourage you to think through what are the things you're doing that maybe don't make sense anymore for today's environment or for your organization today. So thanks, David, for getting us thinking that way. Also, a thank you to John Lockhorse, one of our listeners who made the connection and recommendation to David. I appreciate it a ton, John. Thank you. And if you have comments, questions, or feedback for this episode or questions in general on leadership, I hope you'll take a moment to go to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. That is the best way to get a question to us for the next Q&A episode coming up the first Monday of every month. Our next episode is 256 for that. And also, in just a moment here, we're going to, speaking of feedback, have a listener spotlight, which we haven't had in a bit. So I'm glad to be able to bring back a listener spotlight to the show. But before I do that, a quick reminder, if you haven't already joined my weekly leadership guide, I hope you will. It comes to your inbox every Wednesday. It includes my thoughts and recommendations on articles, podcasts, videos, things that I found online throughout the week that will help you to really benefit the most from your continued leadership development between the shows. And it also has the weekly show notes in there every week. So you've got a quote from the guest and links back to all the things we've talked about. If you listen on the go like I do, it's going to help you to stay current with what's happening as far as recommendations and resources. And as a bonus, when you join the weekly leadership guide, you'll get access to my reader's guide that lists the 10 leadership books that will help you to get better results from others with brief summaries from me on the value of each of those books. It's a 11-page PDF and a video that comes with it where I walk through each of those books what I took away from them, what I think you can take away from them, and why I think they're going to be critical for your leadership development. And if that is something that is sounding good to you, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. And if you've been listening for a bit, you know that I have been doing in the past uh, listener spotlights, and I'm really thrilled to have a listener spotlight here from Anne. Hi, my name is Anne Mutmann. I'm German, and I live in Paris, France since 20 years. I found the show when I was browsing to find inspiration for one of my sales and leadership webinars I'm hosting. I work as a trainer for a direct sales company and have a community of 1,500 consultants listening monthly. I love to listen to Coaching for Leaders on my weekly commute in the subway train on my way to the head office. I used to 
totally dread those four hours per day crammed in public transportation. And now they are one of my favorite times to learn and grow. I chose a topic depending on my mood or upcoming trainings. Take a pen and notebook and let myself be inspired. I am completely oblivious to my surroundings when I'm listening and I always draw a mind map with my personal notes to commit the key points to memory. One page per topic. The show which had the most impact on me recently was the one with Cal Newport on deep work because I was finally capable of putting a name on what I was doing when I shut everything out for a duration of two, three, four hours so I won't get interrupted in my concentration flow. I am now telling my colleagues that I am doing deep work if necessary and they respect that. I just feel an awful lot less bizarre not being able to multitask. Thanks for that and everything and letting me share my personal experience. Bye bye. Anna, thank you so much for the kind words. I so appreciate it. And if you're just recently listening to the show, the episode that Anna was mentioning is episode 233, Engage in Deep Work with Cal Newport. That was one of my favorites from this year so far too, Anna. And it's uh, generated a lot of conversation in our mastermind community as well. So I certainly recommend that. And uh, I've, I've, I've ridden in the Paris Metro a few times in my life and I never would have imagined that uh, people would be listening to the show while they were doing it. So thanks for that, Anna. I need to get you connected with one of our mastermind members in Paris as well. So remind me to do that. Hey, uh, if you would like to be considered for a future listener spotlight, you can be. Just go to coachingforleaders.com slash spotlight is the way to do that. You'll find everything there you need to know. Have a fabulous week and I'll look forward to talking to you next Monday. Take care.